Would you bet a few thousand dollars that you could sink an eight-foot putt? What about 10 grand that you could win a drag race against a Camaro with a thousand horsepower? If you bet $2 million, could you bet it all on one football game? Maybe you wish you could, but you probably wouldn't. Gamblers is about the people who did. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network comes Gamblers Season 2. Listen now. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat Patriots and Jets with Andrew Callahan of the Herald in just a little bit. But I wanted to start with the Celtics because another win for them on Monday night is they take out the Oklahoma City Thunder, a game that looked to be one that they were going to lose for the majority of the game. But they come up and they win that game. And Jason Tatum goes for 27 points, 10 rebounds, three blocks and three steals. And this was legitimately an off night for the guy. And he had 27, 10, 3, and 3. He was just 9 of 23 from the floor and 1 of 9 from deep. But the thing about Tatum that's different this year, and we'll get into it in greater detail, he got to the line 10 times. That's how he gets up to those 27 points, right? So the one thing that you wondered about with Tatum last year is, how do you impact the game when your shot isn't falling? And actually, Eme called him out for this publicly in a game against the Blazers that they lost. I'll never forget it. But Tatum still played really well defensively, hence the three blocks, hence the three steals, even when his shot wasn't falling, even when he had one of the worst fucking technical fouls you will ever see called on a player to the point that Kevin Durant was tweeting about it as he was watching the game where he just clapped. He was frustrated with himself that he had missed a shot. He gets teed up by the official. By the way, that technical foul has already been rescinded. So this is sort of a maturation process with Tatum in terms of hey, when he's not scoring, what else do you do? And he's turned out to be one of the premier defenders in the NBA right now. And really, his two worst games this season were that one last night from a shooting perspective, but he still dominated the game in some sense. And the one against Cleveland where they lost that game to Cleveland, the overtime game, that one that was actually in Cleveland, he had 26, 12, and 6 in that game and the 6 assists in that particular game. So even when he doesn't play well from a shooting perspective, he's giving you a 26, 12, and 6 or he's giving you 27, 10, 3, and 3. So I was wondering sort of why this start to the season isn't getting the attention it deserves because Tatum is on a totally different level right now. So I believe it's because of sort of that sour taste that was left in our mouths after the NBA Finals last year. But after that brutal loss, we heard that Tatum got in the lab. He was working out with his personal coach, Drew Hanlon, that he got to work. And it's worth acknowledging that there are some historical reference points to what Tatum's doing this year with other greats in the NBA. But before we even get into this, remember this with Tatum. If he had won that championship last year, he was way ahead of schedule, right? So if you go post-1980s, Jordan wins his first championship at 28. He has to go through the Pistons a bunch. LeBron wins his first championship at 27, Steph Curry, 27, Shaq, 28, Giannis Antetokounmpo, 27. Kobe was not the best player on that first Lakers three-peat, if you will. He was on the second back-to-back. He was 30 in the second back-to-back. Shaq was the best player on those early teams, right? Some of the guys that did it early, Dwayne Wade at 24, which remember, he did have Shaq with him. 
And Shaq was still really, really good that year. Now, give Dwayne Wade credit, but that's sort of a different thing. You still had a top five player in the league playing with you, a guy that had recently been the MVP, and Tim Duncan did it at 22. Tim Duncan's just on a totally different level in terms of he came into the NBA and he was immediately one of the best players. We very rarely see that, especially in the modern day NBA. Now, in the 80s, we saw it with Magic. We saw it with Bird, of course, but you don't ordinarily see that type of a guy comes right out of the collegiate level and he's one of the best five to 10 players in the sport in his rookie year and he's winning it at his second year. That's a very rare thing. So it's just worth pointing out that the age that these guys usually win their first championship in, it's 27, it's 28. It's not like Jason Tatum is 23-year-old season technically a year ago. So I wanted to do, because we haven't done one in a while, we do it a lot with the Red Sox. We did a Patriots one earlier this season, a metric man breakdown of this Jason Tatum start to the season, Okay. So first off, I have a comparison that happened fairly recently in NBA history and how Tatum compares to this particular player. So I'll get to that first. And then how Tatum's start compares to some of the great Celtics forwards of all time in terms of their best starts to a season. Okay, so let's start with the last guy that had a brutal loss in the finals. Not to say that other players haven't, but LeBron. Remember, LeBron loses to the Mavericks after having a 2-1 series lead. Sound familiar? 17.8 points per game in that series. They put Jose Barea on him, and LeBron couldn't post him up. It was humiliating. Remember that? It was embarrassing for LeBron. He had an eight-point game in the NBA Finals. This is a guy that already won multiple MVPs with the Cleveland Cavaliers. He had an eight-point game in the NBA Finals. How about Tatum? Well, he loses to the Warriors after having a 2-1 series lead and a chance to win in Game 4. He had 13 points in game six, and he was six for 18. And it was an embarrassing performance for Tatum in game six. He was the sixth leading scorer in the game, and he was the only guy that season that was first team all NBA, right? So both losses with LeBron and with Tatum, they were brutal. LeBron took a ton of shit, and deservingly so. Questions about, hey, does he have what it takes to win mentally at the highest level? Could he be the best player on a championship team? These were discussions we were having about LeBron James, right? And he's the best player since Michael Jordan. Did he have that Kobe dog in him? And LeBron, this was happening at a national level, right? Not just locally. This was national with LeBron because of everything he was prior to even getting to the NBA and the decision to leave Miami and go to the Heat. Tatum takes a ton of shit after he fails in the finals where the discussions are, can he be a legit number one? Was he mean enough? And the discussions were more intense here locally than nationally with LeBron because a lot after the finals was made of Curry as well and what this means for him in terms of his sort of place in NBA history. But the questions were still here with Tatum to the point where, remember, we were talking about, hey, should they go after Kevin Durant? Because are we so sure that Jason Tatum can be that number one option, be the number one guy, be the alpha and the omega on a championship level team? Those are the questions that we were legitimately asking and it may seem crazy because Tatum was coming off his 23 year old season he was still in his embryonic stages as an NBA player and we were legitimately having these conversations those discussions were real and I think in some sense the comparison with LeBron and Tatum is both guys were in positions where it couldn't really get worse right after those losses I think there is sort of a freedom in the sense that well people are doubting me I'm going to prove everybody wrong. LeBron could never be lower than he was at that point in time where he made the decision. He goes to a super team with Bosh and Wade, and they lost because of him. It was all on LeBron. It was, Wade had a good finals. It was on LeBron, the reason they lost that NBA championship. And with Tatum, it's a similar thing, right? Tatum was the best player on the Celtics team, and he got worse as that series against the Golden State Warriors went on as Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors were getting better. Like when you look at that finals loss, the first thing you point at, now we talk about the turnovers all the time, but you're saying, what the fuck happened at Tatum? Those were the questions that we were bringing up. So to the metric man portion of this, what did LeBron do that year after he lost in the NBA finals? Well, first of all, he got really annoying because remember this is the lockout year and he's tweeting like which team he's going to go to in the NFL and all that. But nonetheless, his first 14 games of the 11-12 season Following that painful loss, LeBron, the Heat go 10 and 4 in the LeBron games. LeBron missed one, so I went to the first 14 games that LeBron 
played and put his record in there. They pumped the Mavericks on opening night. 105-94, but it wasn't that close. Remember, they were blowing them out in the first half of that game. And that was sort of like a message to the rest of the league that LeBron was sending. And in some sense, the Heat were sending as well. But LeBron in those first 14 games, right? That's where the Celtics are at right now. So we'll get to Tatum in a second. 29.8 points per game, 8 rebounds per game, 7.4 assists per game, 2.1 steals per game, 1 block per game, okay? That was LeBron's 27-year-old season, by the way. Jason Tatum, where what was he going to do after losing in the NBA Finals in an embarrassing portion or in an embarrassing manner? They send a message on opening night. They beat the Sixers. Tatum goes for 35. He gets to the line nine times in that game, rips down 12 boards, and sends a message that, hey, he is a different player. Okay, so how about the Celtics, the comparison with LeBron? After 14 games that Tatum has played it, the Celtics are now 11-3, and so a game better than that LeBron group with the Miami Heat. And by the way, this is Tatum's 24-year-old season. 31.9 points per game, so better than LeBron, who was at that 29.8. 7.4 rebounds per game, so very similar to LeBron at 8. Now, LeBron obviously has him in assists. Tatum, 3.9 assists per game. But Tatum's not the same type of player of, as LeBron in terms of the passing. 0.9 steals per game, 1.4 blocks per game, which is actually higher than LeBron. LeBron has him in steals. But it's comparable season so far. And I get it. We're just 14 games in, but it's very comparable what these guys are doing. And I'll get into it in greater detail here. So what both these guys are right now, or what LeBron was in that season and what Tatum is right now, overwhelming physical forces. So LeBron in 11-12, 9.6 free throws per game. So that is sort of the ultimate, right, for a wing player to do that, right? It's one thing for like the bigs of the world to do that. The And Giannis is kind of a big, if you will, but Shaq's a big. Tim Duncan is a big. Giannis is a big, right? These guys just living at the free throw line because they're so overwhelmingly strong in terms of their low post game. And we don't see the low post game anymore, but you get my point. Now, I'm talking about wing players in LeBron and Tatum. This means that guys cannot stop you from getting to the rim. Whenever you want to get to the rim, you're getting there at 9.6 free throws per game. Like seven is really good. That's what I said. Tatum has to be over seven this year. Tatum so far this season, he's at 9.1 free throws per game. Remember, LeBron in 11-12, 9.6. That's up from 6.2. That is Tatum saying, I don't care what you try to do. I am getting to the basket. How about finishing when you get to the cup? This was an issue with Tatum last year, where Tatum, now in the second half of the season, the numbers were better, but Tatum at times struggled to finish at the rim. So Tatum this year in the restricted area, 78.2%, okay? So what he's doing is he's just going through people. So if we, if you're not going to follow me, I'm just going to go through you and score. And last year, he was at 68%. That's up to 78.2%. That is a massive leap. LeBron the year in 11 and 12, he was at 74.5%. So Tatum's actually better than the pace that LeBron was on in that particular season in terms of finishing at the rim. That's when you know you're at your physical peak as an athlete, when you can just get to the rim whenever you want. Okay, how about the transition game? This is a big one for Tatum. That I felt like at times, not just Tatum, but the Celtics in general, they didn't dig into this nearly enough last season. So Tatum right now is at six transition points per game. That's tied for six in the NBA with Jalen Brown, by the way. And it's up from 4.4. So he's at 4.4 last year. He's at six this year. 1.43 points per possession in transition. That is the best in the NBA among players with at least four possessions a game in transition. That's up from 1.25. So basically, and look, Giannis is averaging more points per game in transition, but he gets out and runs like crazy. Tatum is basically the most efficient transition player in the NBA right now. And that's, remember what we were saw with LeBron in that 11 and 12 season when every night he looked like he was just the best athlete on the floor and he was on a different planet than everybody else. And from a numbers perspective, Tatum is doing a very similar thing. Side note, by the way, when you watch this team play, This is the best wing combination, if you will, that we've seen since LeBron and Wade, just from an athletic standpoint, right? Because even if you go back to that great Warriors team, it's not like Curry's a wing. It's not like you have Curry and Durant as these unbelievable athletic freaks. Now, Durant's a freak in his own right, but if you just look at it in terms of the wing guys, this is what Paul George and Kawhi Leonard were supposed to be with the Los Angeles Clippers, and it just never has manifested. They've really not even made a deep run in the postseason. They had that run where they lost in the second round to the Mavericks. 
And they made it to the conference finals a couple years ago, but Kawhi Leonard was dealing with an injury. This is what it was supposed to look like for the Clippers. And we're seeing this right now with the combination of Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Just every night, you have the two most athletic wings on the court. By the way, Jalen's at a career high as well, but this is about Tatum. I'll get back to Tatum here. But with Tatum, he's going to have to eventually do what LeBron did, which is get over the hump and win the championship, right? But what we have to acknowledge is what he's doing so far is similar to what LeBron did in that 11 and 12 season where he knows he's one of the most gifted players in the sport. And now he's taken it to the different level where mentally he's there, right? Where he realizes he has all the physical tools. He knows he can overwhelm you in transition. He knows he can get to the free throw line basically anytime he wants. And he knows too, like LeBron in 11-12, LeBron legitimately could have won the defensive player of the year that year. That's how good that Miami Heat defense was. And Tatum is taking that same challenge on the defensive side of the floor where it's like when we've seen these great wings, right? Now, Kawhi Leonard did it in a smaller sample size because he's always dealing with injuries where he's the best defensive player on the court every night. And he's the best offensive player on the court every night. And he's the most physically challenging player to deal with every single night. So I thought that was the interesting comparison if you're looking at how Tatum has started this year compared to somebody else in recent history. And it's that same thing motivating him, right? To get back there, get to the NBA Finals again. And with LeBron, he had already proven he was the best player in the sport, right? I guess some people would still lean Kobe at that time, but... LeBron had won two MVP awards. Tatum, of course, not there yet. So where Tatum differs from LeBron is Tatum is still after, hey, let me get crowned as the best player in the league. And look, he's got a lot of competition with the Giannis's and with the Lucas of the world right now. So Tatum's trying to get to that level and get to the championship. LeBron was just trying to get over the hump and get to the championship. So we've seen Tatum sort of take both those lanes, right? Let me get in the conversation as the best player in the sport and let me get back to the NBA finals and prove I can do it at the biggest stage. So that loss long-term could actually work out really well for Tatum. And we've already seen, like, it's legitimate how difficult that loss was for Tatum to deal with. Okay, so I did want to get to some of the other great starts from Fords in Celtics history. Nobody's on top, Bird. Now, Tatum has him in terms of points in basically all these years in terms of his first 14 games, but you just go to 84-85. The Celtics start 13-1. Bird averages 28 points per game, two 40-point games in there. 10.3 rebounds per game, 6.1 assists per game, 1.7 steals. He had two five-steal games and 1.5 blocks per game. And he's basically did it every year. I mean, you go to 86-87, the Celtics start 10-4. and Now, Bird was actually kicked out of a game that year against the Bucs. From the recap, I read about this one. He got one technical for throwing the ball in the air, and then he argued with the official, and he was ejected. So one of those games, he only played nine minutes, but still... His numbers in those first 14, 26.6, 8.9 rebounds, 6.7 assists, 1.6 steals per game. So nobody's ever going to get into the bird territory here, but it is worth mentioning that Tatum in terms of the scoring, he's there. He's never going to be the passer that Bird was, right? And if you think about it too, with Bird, he saw everything, right? Before it was happening. Tatum's not that type of player. Like LeBron sees everything before it's happening. Now Tatum is getting better in that. And we're actually talking last week with Michael Pina from The Ringer. You see Tatum now, he actually cuts to pass. So Tatum is seeing the game at a higher level, but I don't see him ever being the basketball genius, of course, that Larry Bird or even LeBron is right now. Okay, then you look at Pierce. So 0102 is Pierce's best statistical season in general and his best statistical start. The Celtics are just eight and six, though, and I'll get to why that was in a second here. 28.4 points per game. He had a 48 point game in there against the Nets. rebounds per game, 2.4 assists, 1.8 steals per game, one block per game. So that would be the closest to what Tatum is doing now. Obviously, Pierce wasn't having the team success that Tatum is having. But that Celtics team preseason, their over-under was 35 and a half wins. They won 49 and made it to the conference finals because of Pierce. And after Pierce and Walker, you look at that team, you're talking about Kenny Anderson, Tony Delk, Tony Batie, Eric Williams, Ronnie Rogers, Joe Johnson, a young Joe Johnson. Remember Joe Forte? He didn't play, but he was the guy that they drafted out of North Carolina. Kedrick Brown was on that team. He, of course, never played. But look, I love that era of Celtics basketball just because they were relevant again. But Pierce didn't have a ton to work with on that team. You go to 05-06 where Pierce was lighting up as well. They only won 33 games. 
Ricky Davis, Wally Zerbiak, Delonte West, Mark Blount, Rafe LaFrance, Ryan Gomes, Perk, Tony Allen, a young Al Jefferson, 25.8 points for him that year, 8.9 rebounds, 4.2 assists, 1.2 steals in his first 14 games of the season. But again, the Celtics are just 6-8. and eight. They won 33 games. This is when Pierce was starting to sort of get out unhappy with the Celtics. Now, we all know what would happen in terms of the Garnett trade. But again, that comparison to Tatum, it's not really there. In terms of Tatum at 31.9, 7.4 rebounds, 3.9 assists, the Tatum comparison to Pierce, Tatum has already passed him. And I know that Pierce is a finals MVP and all that, but if you look at just what Tatum has done on an individual level, he's already done more in terms of individual accolades than Pierce, minus the finals MVP, which is important. But here's the thing I would say with Pierce. Pierce is a great Celtic. I love Pierce, okay? But let's remember this. He was not the best player on the team that won the championship. Yes, he got the finals MVP, but we all know who the best player on that team was. As much as we love Pierce because he was here first, Kevin Garnett was the best player. He was the defensive player of the year. He's the reason the Celtics defense was way better than anybody else's in the league. Kevin Garnett was the reason that Paul Pierce was playing defense. Pierce was not a great defender, and then all of a sudden he took it up to a totally different level when Kevin Garnett got here. So, Pierce was never really the best player on a championship team. And I know that technically Tatum's not there either, but there is a likelihood that Tatum eventually is going to get to that spot. And even if you look at it, Pierce, he only made four All-NBA teams, three third teams and one second team. Well, Tatum's already halfway there. He made a third team a couple of years ago, and last year he was a first teamer. He's already halfway there in terms of the total, and Pierce never got that first team. So if you just look at that comparison... Tatum is way more talented than Pierce ever was. Now, Pierce is really good at getting to his spots, but did you ever feel like Pierce was the best athlete on the floor or that Pierce was unstoppable physically? I, quite frankly, never felt that way with Pierce. I always loved Pierce. I always think he's a great player. But you think about that era and the unstoppable physical guys, it's the Kobe Bryant's of the world. It's And Pierce had a better career, but it's the Vince Carter's of the world. Tracy McGrady's of the world, even though McGrady was not a great postseason player, I never put Pierce in that category. And then, of course, the great Celtic John Havlicek, 70-71, first post-Russell year. The Celtics start 8-6, 29.7, 9.4 rebounds, 8.3 assists per game. Now him, of course, you're talking about four All-NBA first teams and seven second teams. And all those All-NBA first teams came post-Russell. So what you're seeing with Havlicek compared to it's a different situation than Tatum, right? Havlicek like got the team to be his team in the 70s after Russell. So his sort of motivation was to prove that he could do it without Russell and he would end up doing it. But with Tatum, it's just interesting to see where he's at sort of in the pecking order of the NBA, because we all thought he was a really good player coming into the season. But what was he going to do to build off what he did a season ago? And I know that a lot of you right now are thinking, well, hey, Brian, we got to see him get to the finals. We got to see him win a championship. And I get all that. But so far this season, the guy has checked every box that you would have wanted him to check as he's trying to recover after a brutal loss. And it does really remind me of what LeBron did, where he looks like the best athlete. He looks like the game has slowed down for him. And he finds a way to win every night, even if his shot isn't falling. Like, that Thunder game is so impressive to me. All right, a lot more to get into. We're going to get into what's going on with the Patriots offense with Andrew Callahan from the Herald in just a second here. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the Herald and the Pats Interference Pod as well it is Andrew Callahan back again. Andrew, thanks so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. Anytime. It's good to be back the uh, second half of the season. post by. we are refreshed. We're ready to go. We're on to the Jets. Yeah, I hope the Patriots are refreshed because they're going to need that in the second half of the season. Hey, so let's start with something we talked about actually last time you were on. Little Jordan Humphrey. I saw you tweet just before we started recording that the Patriots released him. This is a guy that played 82% of the snaps against Baltimore. I'm so glad that he got all those snaps against Baltimore, man. It was really worth it. Yeah, the little era is over uh, in New England. This was a classic case, I think, of the staff trying to have its cake and eat it too, where we're going to be in 11 personnel, play three receivers, but we want to block like 12. And it's like all of these things they try to do that are better in theory than in practice. 
And I think they just showed you the results on how that test went, which is uh, he's off the team. Yeah, I would have just played the boring guy more, but hey, that's just me. Hey, so let's start with one of the big things that's been going on over, I would say, like the last week and change is this whole idea that the Patriots have been tipping plays. Bill said they did it. Max said they did it. So how big of a concern is this, Callahan? Yeah, so let's just start out and say tipping plays is bad. Um, (laughs) And I I was in the locker room when this happened, when Mac was among the few offensive players who were like, how did they know? And it was screens and it was outside runs and it was Shaq Leonard calling out a lot of it. But the way Belichick addressed it two days later had me much less concerned for the Patriots because I think if it was something serious, he would not have opined and like almost sounded impressed with CJ Mosley and Shaq Leonard, right? Like this was the defensive coach and him speaking out. And that told me they've either A, identified what, if any issues there were, or B, this is truly something that happens all the time, which was the sense we got from defensive players that I talked to last week who were like, look, if you study enough film, there are only so many plays you can run in the league. And it was kind of like, look, you know, if you go out a lot, you have a buddy who blacks out or drinks too much once upon a time. That's not a good thing. But like the night gets better of everyone at some point. So if it happens every (laughs) week... Then you've got an internal issue and you need some sort of outside help. But this seems like, you know, they just had a little bit too much there. Yeah. May have happened to me once or twice back in the day in college. But I mean, we'll forget about that. So, all right. So I'm not as concerned now that you say that. But how about this? This is something that concerns me. So Mac against pressure this season, 27.2 passer rating, which is 38th out of 39 qualifiers, five interceptions. Only Matt Ryan has more. So what's the biggest problem here? Is it the line? Is it the play caller? Or is it the quarterback himself? Yeah, however you want to slice the blame pie, everyone's getting a plate and everyone's getting at least a quarter. Okay, so we're fighting over like 25% of whatever's left of this pie. And before I answer that, I want to go back to a story I wrote in November 2019, which I was reading today, trying to think about the same issue. And like the Patriots season at that point, slowly spiraling, right? They have a losing record over the second half of the year. The story was about Tom Brady throwing the ball away more than he had ever done in his career. And as I was researching that story, wondering why he was doing so much, I found that his six highest single season totals for throwaways were in his last six seasons in New England, which you'll remember three Super Bowl titles. His two best seasons by QBR and then an MVP. So none of that happened in 2019. But what did happen was he kept the Patriots offense afloat at a time where they were super limited. And he's really just throwing to Julian Edelman. And the way he did that was through those throwaways. He was not turning the ball over. He was avoiding negative plays, which are basically explosive plays for the defense where, you know, look, you get a 20 yard game via pass or 15 yard run. Your odds of scoring on that drive are really good. If you get a sack or for some sort of holding penalty as a defense, you're probably going to force a punt. So Brady kept all that off the field, and they maximized what they were doing, even in bad situations under pressure. Mack, on the other hand, has as many throwaways this season as he does interceptions under pressure. Last year's pressure rate is about the same as it was this year. It was 27.8 last year, according to PFF. It's up to about 30 right now. So you're talking about one extra pressure per game. But his reaction is so much worse that his turnover-worthy play percentage, again, courtesy of our friends at PFF, is up from 3.5% last year to 10.6. So Mac does not trust his line. He's not throwing the ball away just to get these kind of net, you know, neutral plays. He's getting a lot more negative plays. And you could chalk that up to the route spacing downfield, which is a problem. The play calling is a little bit predictable. The line hasn't been very good. But if Mac is just a cooler customer under center, as Brady got more in his later years in New England, throwing the ball away even in 14 and 16 and 18 Super Bowl runs, that all that stuff doesn't matter as much. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point. Those numbers are crazy. So, like, I'm interested in it just because, like, we watch the game and it, it feels like at times Mac is holding on to the ball way too long. And that may be oversimplifying things and people that – you know, we're in the NFL, they say, well, it's it's easy for you guys to say that watching the game. But it does seem like it's blatantly obvious at times this year, Callahan, where he is just holding on to the ball too much. And at some point, too, he's really flat in the pocket at times or it doesn't feel like he climbs the pocket. The one thing he does do, it feels like he tries to get out and run, which that's something that I didn't expect from Mac coming into the season. So is it just one of these things where he's in his own head? To some degree, yes. I mean, there are certain plays where you're just waiting for routes to develop and they don't or there's a miscommunication. Like everyone jumps on him over the interceptions, which for the most part is true. But, you know, the one he had against the Jets that was called back to pick six, Jacoby Myers ran a wrong route. Like that was a choice route where you can go left or right based on leverage of coverage. 
Jacoby decided to go left and then curl around the defender and just kind of like hug him from behind. You can't do that. So Mac threw the ball going left, anticipating he would break away, and he didn't. So some of those, yes, he's thinking too much and then going to scramble to try to save these plays. But ultimately, he's not going to get very far. And so it's a matter of him, I think, hanging in there a little bit longer. And then obviously, when the plays don't unfold and it's not his fault, we just have to be able to differentiate those plays. Because like I said, in this blind pie, everyone's getting at least a quarter. And one of the things that scares me, speaking of the pressure, is this Jets team, right? They're fourth in pressure rate. Quentin Williams, 35 pressures, fourth among D-linemen, eight sacks tied for first among D-linemen. So is this just a really bad matchup for the Patriots on Sunday? And do you expect them to try some of the quick game a little bit more than they've been doing so far this year? I mean, is that the way you defeat this Jets defense? Because they didn't have really any success in that game a couple weeks ago. Yeah, which is interesting, too, because, A, they still won uh, because, thank you, Zach Wilson. Uh, but, B, <laughs> <laughs> Patriots, they did run a lot more quick game. You look at Mac's average depth of target, and it was way down from the first three weeks of the season, and it was still down against the Colts, and it was partly due to protection. You were missing David Andrews, who should be back. I talked to him the other day um, against the Jets, who's going to plug up those holes against Quinton Williams and then Sheldon Rankins is out. So I don't think the interior is going to be as much of an issue. But the edge is a real problem. Like Marcus Cannon gave up five pressures, even in a game where they're playing a lot of quick game through the passing game. And then Cole Strange gets benched with two holding penalties, a run stuff, a sack, a hurry, and another quarterback hit. So you need to figure out what's going on at right tackle or at least help there a little bit better because it looks like Yadni Kajust is going to be there. And then Cole Strange told me it's just about fundamentals for him, which is a lot about hand placement, anchoring, and pad level. At some point, like if you can't get the fundamentals down in week 11, they might turn to a totally different player and have an Isaiah win. I think, though, as far as the Jets' defensive line, they're in better shape than they were three weeks ago. But you're right. It's still a little bit of a problem. Yeah, the strange thing is interesting because he had a couple of good games in there, and then it feels like he's really fallen off. And I do come back to this whole thing, and the first guy to bring it up was Christian Fourier before the season at my old stomping grounds. And he essentially said you can't be the play caller and the offensive line coach now maybe some of it is just personnel but it does feel like there's so much on a guy's plate where it's not only his first year as an offensive coordinator he's coaching the line for the first time as well it just seems like if you're going to give this first role to Patricia being the play caller he shouldn't be coaching the offensive line as well if anything maybe he should be coaching the quarterbacks but it just feels like that whole idea and I give Fourier credit for it he may be right that you just can't do that especially when you're in your first year as the play caller yeah, and even Dante Skarnecchia was taken aback a little bit, talking to my colleague Kerry Garrigan of like, look, if Bill thinks he's capable, I'm sure he is, but that seems like a lot to me. And Dante <laughs> is one of the few guys who predates Bill in New England and is obviously a legendary offensive line coach. So, yeah, I think it's a big issue. And the offensive line coach is a position I think still somehow gets underrated because when you look at the hierarchy of your most important jobs on a staff, head coach, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, then you're fighting it out between quarterbacks, coach, an offensive line coach. So you're talking about like at a restaurant, you know, you've got your owner, you got your manager and you got the chef. If you're having someone be the head chef and the assistant who's dealing with the apps, the desserts and the main courses, like that guy's going to be overwhelmed and you're going to have it going things a lot slower coming out of the kitchen. And that's what they put on Matt Patricia, who wasn't in the kitchen to begin with coaching <laughs> defense. And then as a head coach. So like, of course, things are going much worse, no matter how you slice it statistically on offense. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that we all kind of saw coming before the year, and now we're seeing the results of it so far this year as well. So how about the RPO game? Because I did feel like in the first Jets game, they started to use it a little bit more, not as much in that Colts game. But I mean, this is something that we've been talking about for a year and a half now, right, where Mac was really good at Alabama in the RPO game. We've seen that the Miami Dolphins have become one of the best offenses in the NFL because of how often they're using RPOs because their quarterbacks really good in that particular scenario and Tua has been one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL I think part of what's helped Tua is the scheme is the coaching staff and obviously I give him a ton of credit but they pick up a guy like Tyree Kill I'm just wondering if the Patriots are realizing like hey this is some of the low-hanging fruit in the NFL our quarterback was very successful using this at the collegiate level oh and our quarterback said publicly he really likes RPOs at a press conference this year will they start to dig into this a little bit more I love that might have been my most favorite moment from a Mac press conference this year, which are, let's say, just admit it, snoozers to begin with. But he's like, 
yeah, they're cool. Like <laughs> it was a 10 year old kid who had just discovered like, you know, his favorite action figure. Like, oh man, this is so cool. But you know, you're right in the sense that you need to play to the quarterback strengths. Like that should be obvious to anyone following football, coaching football, playing football. The issue is when they've run these RPOs and they're bottom five in the league in terms of usage, they haven't been totally productive. They did run a few on that touchdown drive. They're only one against the Jets three weeks ago. They ran 12 that game, six against the Colts. And Matt Patricia would surely tell you, oh, these are game by game, week by week game plan decisions. But I think that's true and that they're facing a lot of zone defenses when those are going to be you know, maximum effective and early downs. I think they just need to be a little bit more flexible in offense because the other thing they did against the Colts was run on eight of 11 first downs to start the game against a lot of stacked boxes, which put them behind the chain. So at least with the RPO game, you're going, OK, we have a in the box. Let's just throw it out here for a quick bubble screen. Or in my opinion, you build out the RPO package where instead of running all these bubbles, throw a slant in there or a seam or a glance route, which is going to give you a downfield opportunity. And right now, all we're seeing are these little screens behind the line of scrimmage, which I think is a reason partly why they've been ineffective today. Yeah, that Colts game was that was so tough to watch because they kept screwing Mac over for second down, right? Because they were in such difficult situations where it was obvious passing downs. And when this team's not a very good passing team to begin with, it makes it even more difficult to the quarterback. But you said something really interesting there about what Matt Patricia would say about it depends on the opponent and the game plan, so to speak. So I'm wondering this, just from like a Patriots perspective, I get it throughout the Brady era that you could kind of be chameleons and switch up your game plan from week to week. But it doesn't feel like the Patriots have those staples that they're really good at. They had stuff last year that worked, but it seems like they sort of just have to figure out what they're good at and use that more than worrying every week about the opponent. Yeah, it's a good point, too. And this gets back to the first thing I said, in which they they kind of live in this space where things are so good in theory, but then in practice, you run into some sort of issues. Like, we're these brainiac coaches. You know, the first thing you hear about players and coaches who like Matt Patricia, and it's a, it's a minority, let's just admit it when they talk publicly, it's how smart of a guy he is. But when you get on, on the field, you have to ask yourself, what can we do to make things most stressful on a defense? And it's not running outside zone and pairing with a bootleg, which they've already ditched because it didn't work out well. But in theory, that should that should work great. You know, two things that look similar and then go in total opposite directions after the play starts. So I think ultimately you're right. They do need to find some sort of strength. We've asked players from Mac to Hunter Henry, who are just sick of asking, hey, what's your offensive identity? <laughs> but they don't have a definitive answer. So that's why they keep getting asked about it. And at some point, you know, you look at the two tight ends that embody this whole idea of we will be so versatile and unpredictable and just multifaceted. And that hasn't come to fruition in reality. And so they pivoted away from them and played a lot more three receiver sets. But even within that, are you a zone running team? Are you a man running team? These things take time to figure out. But you need some answers when you get to games like this on Sunday which really could decide their whole playoff chances. I know. It is crazy that the Jets-Patriots game after the bye week is like a massive <laughs> game. I never saw this one coming. I looked at it before the season and said, hey, this is a layup game, but it doesn't look that way at this point. But you mentioned the tight ends and Hunter Henry. I felt like one of the great things that the Patriots had going last year was that sort of chemistry between Mac and Hunter Henry. Like Jacoby Myers obviously had a great year, but it felt like when Mac needed a first down in the red zone, he had nine touchdowns last year. That was the guy that Mac was going to. Now, the game against the Colts, we saw him involved a little bit more. Now, if you go back to his other two big games this year, it's with Bailey Zappi. So I'm kind of wondering why the Patriots, and maybe some of it's on Mac, they kind of took that club out of the bag for a good portion of the season. What's the rationale behind that? Yeah, it's it's funny because Mac and Hunter Henry are next door neighbors. So part of me in this season wanted to get down to like, is Hunter just leaving his trash out in front of his house too long? Has he not <laughs> returned any, you know, gardening tools or lawnmowers? Like what's going on there? Because they're close friends, obviously had a great connection last year. But, you know, I just talked about Patricia with default of the same, although we'll do what we think is best game after game. And Belichick says the same thing. This was especially true, though, against the Colts. And I wrote this leading up to that game of if there's ever a game for Hunter Henry and John Smith to break out, this is it. They are a bottom 10 pass defense by every single metric against tight ends. They were bottom three versus two tight end sets by EPA. And then Patricia rolls out two tight end personnel on 13% of all their snaps before garbage time. But even within those 13 snaps, Hunter Henry, four targets, four catches, 50 yards. Jonu Smith, 24-yard screen, their second longest play of the day, second longest only to Hunter Henry's 
30-yard catch. So I think this was more of a matchup event-based kind of breakout. But I think when you look at those teams, like you're not attacking them well enough. And in fact, they preferred to run straight at one of the best run defenses in the league that day, which maybe they will or won't do moving forward. But that had much more to do with the Colts, in my opinion, than anything they've done around or specific to Hunter Henry. Yeah, that's interesting. If they're a game plan oriented team, why weren't you going to the tight ends even more in that game against the Colts? That would have made sense based on the numbers that you outlined there. All right. So here's the juicy talk radio question. Is Mac Jones the unquestioned starter the rest of the way? I think unless he absolutely bombs, yes. And to me, it's funny because I think the the greatest and only argument for Bailey Zappi is that he's just not Mac Jones. And not being another person is how you get into your worst relationships possible, right? Like Zappi, when you look at the numbers, he has fumbled in every single game. He's thrown three interceptions. He's faced three of the worst seven defenses in the league by DVOA. And he's exceeded expectations as a rookie, but expectations are the whole reason we're having this conversation. Mac was expected to take a year two leap. He was expected to carry the offense. He was expected to be so much better than the rookie who had one of the best seasons by a rookie quarterback in NFL history. All of that has gone backwards. And so the gap to me is still not closed between him and Zappi, but if Mac still keeps going backwards, he'll get in that area of a fourth round rookie who's turning the ball just as over as often as he is. And that's where I think you have a conversation because, look, they have a small margin for error. And if the guy holding the ball in every single play is is shrinking that or hurting that, then, yeah, you have to give the ball to somebody else. Yeah, I'm with you. I think if Mac starts throwing interceptions, then Bill will actually bench him. But I do think the organization owes it to themselves to find out what they have in the guy. If they drafted him 15th overall and he continues on the trajectory he's on right now, well, then you have to really consider, hey, is Mac our guy going forward? So I think it kind of for the best sake of the organization going forward, they have to continue to keep him out there. But what about Patricia? So it doesn't really appear that there is an internal candidate unless they think that guy is Joe Judge. Like in 2023, is Patricia going to be the play caller? Or do you think they'll be, call me crazy, be willing to go like outside the organization to bring in somebody that has called plays before? Yeah, Brian, that's an absurd idea. Uh, don't, don't People outside the organization don't exist. They don't run different offenses. No, look, I, I think I would put this probably at 75-25. And Belichick thinks incredibly highly of Patricia I think he could probably talk himself into another year. We'll do him good because we all get better with experience. Maybe he makes the year two leap Mac was supposed to. And the other thing is the longer you wait in some sort of uncertainty, the easier it is to talk yourself into a bad option. The flip side of that is Belichick, as we know, is a ruthless pragmatist. He will do whatever it takes and choose the most effective and practical option in his mind, regardless of all the secondary consequences. So you know, let's say he decides Patricia is not the best option for play caller. I don't think it goes to judge. Like, yes, he had that one half or quarter or whatever it was. I think it was three quarters in the preseason opener when Bailey Zappi was playing that he called plays. To my understanding and talking to people within the team, Joe Judge is not as involved with the game planning as you might expect from a guy who's a quarterback's coach and we thought might be the passing game coordinator. Like this is truly collaborative on that sense of putting together passing plans on third down in the red zone and early downs. Like, his hands are not as deep into that as certainly mm-hmm. Josh McDaniels was or other assistants. So the only other option in my mind, because again, they just they just don't go outside the family on this stuff, is Nick Cayley, who, you know, they refuse to let leave before his contract expires. I think it ends after this season, if not next. And he's a guy who's been coaching tight ends, most involved position of the offense after quarterback, you know, run blocking, pass blocking, and obviously receiving. And then has been here obviously longer than Patricia and Judge. But I think Patricia would have to bomb like Mac, I think, in order to kind of lose the play sheet. That's a great point, because I was thinking about that prior to the season when, as you mentioned, they don't let him go. They let Mick Lombardi go. And you look across the league, some of the guys that turned out to be great play callers and then head coaches, Sean McVay, Arthur Smith was a tight ends coach, not to say he's a great coach, but I mean, he has a productive offense with Marcus Mariota as his quarterback, Brian Dayball. I mean, that was a tight ends coach. So I thought that was like the guy that that Bill looked at and said, hey, this is the next great coach within the organization. So I, I was like surprised that he didn't get more of an opportunity last offseason. Were you? I 
I was, but I think also having Patricia in the building kind of behind the scenes, his hands in every little area as a senior football advisor, you know, kind of put things on pause because the way Bill thinks of Patricia so highly, he could insert him anywhere, including a position that no one saw coming. Here's your de facto offensive coordinator. The other part about Kaylee, though, that's interesting. You always see him, and this will come up, I think, probably next month when you have all these national insiders put out a list of future head coaching candidates. He's never been near the top, but he'll be like an outside looking in OLI candidate at the bottom. And you go, how does that happen? Because the way this works is those insiders will call agents of coaches. And sometimes if it fits or the offense is on the rise, naturally just throw their names in there or they'll call head coaches. And so, you know, Belichick will, I think, find reason to put his decisions down there. looks makes him look good. Or maybe, you know, at the end of the contract, like the Patriots didn't let uh, or didn't force Carmen Brasillo, their old offensive line coach, to stay. They let him walk right out the door. So I'm not exactly sure where Belichick stands with Nick Cayley, but he's a guy who has higher aspirations, and I think his name is out there more than most if you were like an, a nut job like me, looking all the way to the bottom of these lists. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens going forward with Cayley. So I want to give you a hypothetical because I've been looking at the impact that some of these receivers have made across the league, right? A.J. Brown, I know the Eagles lost last night, of course, in the Monday night game, but A.J. Brown's made a huge impact for Jalen Hurts. And then we look at the guy in the division, Tyreek Hill, and the Miami Dolphins had already had Jalen Waddle, and they say, you know what, let's put this offense over the top. Let's make sure we give Tua everything he needs to succeed, because if he can't succeed with this group and this scheme, then we move on from the player. Now, the Patriots, of course, they drafted Tyquan Thornton in the second round, which is a high-value asset that you picked up in the draft. Do you think the Patriots seeing sort of where the NFL is going would consider making a Tyree kill type trade? So there's no evidence in their past that suggests they would make a big move for a wide receiver. And that includes trade or just free agency, because you go back to Randy Moss, Brandon cooks, the highest profile guys to come in here via trade. And then obviously re-signing Randy Moss. They didn't, None of them were big investments. Like you give up a first for Cooks, you know you could parlay that, got one back. They all spent them at a discount. Like they saw them as lower value distressed assets that they were able to scoop up and they did. So perhaps that changes. But as recently as two years ago, you could predict and I did how they would rebuild, you know, investing in the tight ends, signing and then drafting a top defensive lineman, another mid-round running back, Ramondre Stevenson. So this tells me that Belichick's core roster-building philosophies are still intact, and he would prefer to, prefer to play the depth game of receiver. We'll take Devontae Parker on a discount. You know, we'll sign guys for the, the middle-class tier so that eventually, like, it, they see it as kind of a weak link system. You know, if we have decent receivers across the board, someone will have a mismatch. It's not we have a number one who could get doubled and removed, and then where do we go? Because then our worst player probably doesn't force a mismatch. I think they're going to continue with that. But the other part about this is, schematically, there are some changes they can make and have tried to make, and it hasn't worked because Mac is not a player who can clearly elevate or carry an offense on himself as kind of a pocket-bound, ground-bound guy. That might convince them heading into year three and four of his rookie contract, maybe we do need to change courts at least here, even though they haven't really done it the last 20, 22 years. Yeah, I think you're probably right, but I hope that last thing you said is correct because I think about some of these guys that are limited, even like look at Jimmy G where he's had some good years in San Francisco because they even got him another weapon this year. They got him a McCaffrey to go along with Debo and George Kittle. And I look at a guy like Kirk Cousins. They hit on Justin Jefferson in the draft, who may be the best receiver in the NFL right now. When you have a quarterback like Mac, like Cousins, like Jimmy, that is somewhat limited, I just wish that the Patriots would go get him an elite weapon. It's one thing to do it with Brady, but even Brady, he had Gronk for the majority of his career. And before that, he had Randy Moss. So even the greatest, and now he's got Goblin and Evans in the Patriots. It's like, okay, let's see what we get from Myers and Bourne and Henry. It just feels like, that strategy would work if Aaron Rodgers is the quarterback. It's not going to work with Mac Jones. I just wish that they would embrace that, but I fear that they won't, honestly, Kellen. I don't think they will. Yeah, and you talk about Gronk. Like, they set the market with him after two years, making him the highest then-paid tight end ever in NFL history, and it was as much, look, he is a generational talent, best tight end ever, though they didn't know it at the time. It was how he was going to impact the game also as a run blocker, as boring and as nonsensical as that is. But that's a position they value highest. Those are positions they're willing to pay top dollar for, expecting to get the return on that investment. I think Belichick, as he has so often before, even when he didn't have a Stefan Gilmore or Darrell Rivas here, or even go back to Ty Law, 
found a way to take away receivers with doubles or a safety over the top or any different kind of coverages and pressure. He thinks it's just harder to do with the tight end. You know, again, the counterpart is it's not only that, you know, Mac might not be as talented enough from the pocket like a Brady or Rodgers, because those, again, are generational talents. He's not a scrambler. Like he can't create offense on his own where Zach Wilson, you know, if he just kind of uh, <laughs> behaves in the pocket and doesn't throw off these lollipops and terrible turnovers and throws, like the Jets win the other week against the Patriots. He's more talented. He can scramble for first downs and kind of create late in the shot clock, which is where the quarterback paradigm has really shifted. Like this is a scorer in the NBA who can get buckets when the shot clock is going down. And you just have to win one-on-one. Mac Jones can not. And will not ever really be able to do that. It's just not the player he is. So he needs to rely on better weapons outside to help him find, you know, extend plays and then force a ball in the third and seven because Gronk is just going to win. You know, Randy Moss is just going to win. Justin Jefferson is just going to win. That's how good they are. Yeah, that's a great point, too, is just like the even Justin Fields, right? Like we see it now, like, okay, he may not be the best pocket passer or passer in general, but because he has that ability to run it, Josh Allen, his first two years, wasn't a great passer. And then he became more consistent. We saw what happened when you put those two things together. And then the Gronk thing is compelling to me too, because the other portion of that is, if you look at probably the best three pass catching guys in that era, Gronk in the last decade, it was probably him, Antonio Brown, who's we all know what's going on with him now, and Julio Jones. And think about the cap hit that the Patriots had compared to Julio Jones with Atlanta. So they almost beat the system in that sense, too, that Gronk wasn't getting that high in receiver money. And he was probably better than all those guys because of all the different roles that he had. So it really was. I mean, it was a genius move by Bill. And look, obviously, they didn't see Gronk. I think he was going to be the best tight end or one of in NFL history. But it's really something looking back at now that you say it, it, it makes me think like, holy shit, like they really got away with something like not having to pay Gronk that money. And I now I can see why Gronk was so upset for so many years with his contract. <laughs> and you look also at the receiver market moving forward, like you have guys exploding for $20 million a year right now. So for the Patriots who said, no, we're going to stick to a middle class approach, a weak link system and get all these guys who are really number twos and number threes, like they're only going to be emboldened by the way things are going. Because you don't want to overpay for a number one receiver who's being paid like a perennial pro bowler or hall of famer. So the other part about that is though, the cornerback market a year before last year, was rising like that, you know, heading past Byron Jones is getting paid more than Stefan Gilmore. I'm curious if and when the receiver market ever cools because mm. the cap is going to spike, in my understanding, and talking to some agents, you know, north of um, $200 million, close to $300 million uh, very soon. And so within those years, do you see the receiver market start to come back? And then is there some sort of sweet spot for the Patriots going, okay, we'll lock up someone or trade for someone like the Bills did with Stephon Diggs, sign him to a deal that eventually becomes team-friendly. But right now, again, there's just nothing to suggest that will happen. And, you know, maybe they pivot eventually and also kind of lean into the kind of the dual-threat quarterback who can win on third down or red zone on his own without needing that kind of talent. Yeah, and to the receiver point, that's what's interesting to me about Thornton because if Thornton hits – well, that's cheap labor for the next three to four years after this year. And if he can turn out to be like a really good receiver, I mean, that's a huge hit for Bill and company going forward, not having to pay him, not having to pay for a top end of the market receiver. All right, Callahan, before we let you go. So Matthew Judon now leads the league in sacks. Even after the bye week, he is third in pressures. So my thing is, if he's going to win defensive player of the year, we know that he's going to close better than he did a season ago. But I would say that the Patriots have to get into the postseason and he has to lead the league in sacks. Where are you at on Judon's DPOY candidacy, if you will? Yeah, Matt Judon has to make the voters an offer they can't refuse. Like that, It's that simple. He needs to play well in big primetime games. You mentioned it. They need to make the playoffs and probably force a few more fumbles. Like Whatever the sexiest highlights that will make Sunday Night Football or NFL primetime, whatever they are, the players or voters aren't watching the Patriots, perfectly understandable given the way this team plays like that's it because he will lose a tiebreaker to Micah Parsons because Parsons plays for a team it's on national tv the whole time the most watched team in the NFL he's an up-and-coming player he's new he's sexy and he's more talented so Judon needs to have a season like TJ Watt a year ago I don't think this is going to happen I don't know what the odds are I'm not necessarily a big betting guy but if they're low enough like yeah, sprinkle a little bit on there because if the Patriots stay competitive in these games, they don't need to win. They just need to have teams passing enough. And this guy's off to obviously uh, a career year. Yeah. And I give Steve Belichick and Gerard Mayo some credit because they're moving them on, uh, moving them around, getting some mismatches. So they've done some good stuff with them. All right. That is Andrew Callahan from the Boston Herald, the Pats interference pod as well. Callahan, thanks so much for the time, man. Great stuff as always. Appreciate you, Brian. 
Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Andrew Callahan of the Herald. This is crazy. The Jets-Patriots game actually has real stakes on Sunday. Like, this is something I didn't think we would have anytime soon based on what the Jets looked like coming into the season. It's a talented team, but I mean, Zach Wilson is the quarterback. I did not think we were going to be here with the Patriots and Jets playing a massive game at this point in the season. All right, so I did want to get to some Red Sox news and then get back to the Celtics for a second. So Nathan Avaldi did not take the qualifying offer. And I'm in some sense surprised about this because it's a lot of money. It's north of $19 million. And I wouldn't give him anything more than a two-year contract. And if I'm giving him a two-year contract, it would be less than that $19 million. Like I would give him something like two for 30, but I certainly would not give him a three-year contract just based on the health of the player. I really thought that they were going to get Nate to come back on that qualifying offer. I guess the good news is if he does leave, You get draft compensation. But I really was feeling optimistic that Nate was going to take that deal, prove that he's healthy, and then see what he can get in the following offseason, especially considering, look at this pitching class. You have Verlander. You have Jacob deGrom. You have Carlos Rodon. So there's a lot of really good starting pitchers out there. And I just, I'm surprised that there's really a market for Nate based on what sort of transpired last year and the age. He's entering his 33-year-old season. 32 starts in 2021. Last year, he made just 20. You go back to a couple of years ago. In 18, he made 22, 21 starts. He pitched in 22 games. So there's a lot of seasons here. Even the shortened season in 2020, he was dealing with an injury. We all know in 19, he barely pitched because he was dealing with an injury where he had to get loose bodies repaired in his biceps, an injury that he previously had with the Tampa Bay Rays. So he's dealt with so many injuries throughout his career. I just... He's not somebody you want signed long term. And I really felt like it would have behooved Nate to take this deal with the Red Sox. And we know he likes being here as well. He said it publicly. The problem just is he has really had one healthy year here. And the big thing with this year that's different is he never really recovered from the injury. So if you look at his 12 starts prior to his first IL trip, 68 and a third innings, he had a 316 ERA. Okay. Let's look at post-IL trip, eight starts, 41 innings, and a 5.05 ERA. He was really bad when he came back. Now, I give him credit. He tried to gut it out, but here's why his numbers went down so significantly. So 12 starts before the IL trip, 40.3% fastballs, and the fastball sat at 96.6 miles per hour. Okay, post-IL trip, which was eight starts, 35.5% fastball, so that percentage is way down. And how about the velocity, 94.3, 96.6 down to 94.3. And you can see it in the strikeouts. Pre-IL trip, he's at 25.8%, which is elite. Anything over 25% for a starter is elite. 17.1% post-IL trip. That is a contact level pitcher. That is not Nathan Evaldi. That's like Rich Hill territory when you're looking at a number like that. The walks are up as well. So when you look at it, this is why I'm kind of perplexed by this decision. Like, do his reps think that they're selling to other teams or another team is going to buy into the fact that he's just going to be the same guy that he was prior to the IL trip because he never recovered last year? Like, to me, the Red Sox have all the medical information on this guy. The other teams right now don't have all the medical information on this guy. But it seems like if I'm a team outside of the Red Sox looking at Nathan Evaldi, I would be awfully careful about signing this guy to a multi-year contract based on the issues that he's had from a medical perspective, and in particular, what happened last year? Like, we didn't see good Nathan Avaldi prior to his initial IL trip. It didn't work out when they brought him back. I mean, there was a time last year where baseball savant, I'm watching a game and I'm looking at baseball savant trying to figure out what he's throwing, and baseball savant couldn't determine what the pitches were until the next day because they didn't recognize the pitch because the velocity was so down from Avaldi. So I am perplexed and shocked that Nate didn't take it. 
And I would have loved to have him back. And if they can get him, like I said, on a two-year deal worth less money in terms of the annual average salary, I'm all for that because I do think that there's a high upside with Nate if he is healthy. Now, I don't want to take that risk for three or four years, but if he is healthy, we've seen that he can be an upper echelon pitcher. You go back to 2021 when he actually had his only healthy season with the Red Sox, 5.7 wins above replacement, according to fan graphs. That was first in the American League and it was third in baseball. We know he's a big game pitcher. He pitched in the wild card game against the Yankees, and he's been a great member of this organization, right? You think about the role he plays in this clubhouse, sort of the leader of the pitching staff. And remember, him and Whitlock are really close, both Texas guys. Whitlock was training with him before the season last year. He could definitely be a huge influence on Whitlock, who's going to get his first crack in terms of knowing 100% he's in the rotation to start the season. Obviously, he ended up pitching in the rotation last year, and then they put him back in the bullpen. But this is his first year where he knows Going into the year, he's in the rotation. You would like Nate to be there to sort of help him along. Another young pitcher on the staff like Brian Bale. Like, I just feel like Nate would have been perfect here on a one-year deal. And I hope they can get something done on a two-year deal because I do really feel like the upside play is there with Nate. It's just, you got to be prudent in terms of the length of the contract. For me, that's what it's about. It's the length of the contract with Evaldi because you don't want to have a sunk cost with him. All right, so back to the Celtics for a second last night. We talked about Tatum earlier. But I just felt like this was a mature win against the Thunder on that Monday night game. You didn't play well for basically two and a half quarters. You could even say almost three quarters until like the final minute. But you find a way to come back in the fourth, right? And what they did is they ratcheted up the defense. So if you look at the Celtics, and the defense has been an issue at times this year, and especially in the first half, like how many times were the Thunder just going to drive by the Celtics? It was kind of irritating at, at points. And the Celtics went back to their switching scheme and the Thunder were still doing it. They were just going by the switches. They were trying to make it more difficult to make the Thunder play in isolation. And they really could not handle the Thunder in the first half. But this is the positive trend in this game. First quarter, the Thunder had a 120.7 offensive rating. In the second quarter, a 121.4. In the third quarter, that number was down to 100.4. And in the fourth quarter, that number was down to 89.7. So just to put that into the proper context. No team is worse than 117.6 on the season. And the Celtics in the first half, 120.7 and 121.4. And the Bucs are the best defensive team in the NBA this season with a 105 rating. Again, the Celtics in the third quarter, 100.4 and 89.7 in that fourth quarter. So the consistency is not there yet with the defense. But if you want to take a positive sign away from the defense, it's at least we know when they have to turn it on, they can. And we saw it again in that game against the Thunder. And one of the big things to me was Al Horford switching. So two huge stops on Shea Alexander late in that fourth quarter where one of them, he just misses a mid-range jumper. And then another one, Al gets him on a switch. And they're hunting out Al on these switches. And Shea misses a three-pointer. is a fadeaway three. It wasn't a good three by Shea, who was a problem for the majority of the night. But seeing Al do that, that's part of the calculus with Al. That's why he didn't play on Saturday night. You want to keep this guy fresh, especially if you're going to go back to some of those switching schemes that we saw be so effective for the Celtics last season. So that was a positive takeaway, Al late in the game, and the Celtics being better in the second half defensively. Another positive in this game is Marcus Smart. So he goes for 22 points, eight assists, and it was the Marcus Smart plays. Hits a jumper late to give them a 115-112 lead. Then he hits a three to make a 118-115. Takes a couple of charges in this game. Hits the lefty layup, which is just incredible late. Jason Tatum was all pumped up with him, and they got the crowd going. And it was, hey, Tatum doesn't have it completely this night. We need somebody else to step up. And Marcus Smart was tremendous in this game. And I'm feeling much better about Marcus Smart than I was maybe two weeks ago when I was wondering if he's the same guy. Because if you look at the seven-game winning streak, 12.3 points per game. Pre-winning streak, he was at 10.4. Effective field goal percentage during the winning streak, 58%. It was at 41%, which is just historically bad. Pre-winning streak. Field goal percentage is up to 49.3% during the winning streak. It was at 34.3 pre-winning streak. The three-point percentage, 38.7%, which is really good for Smart. It was at 22% pre-winning streak. And it's important because we know he's going to take them. He's going to take them. Okay. So it's nice to see him starting to hit some of these. Here's the big one though. He's a plus 40 during the seven game winning streak. The Celtics are a plus 40 with him on the floor. Pre-winning streak, they have been out or they were outscored by 31 points. So totally different player. And you've seen the difference that certainly he's made for this team. And I think in some sense, 
it's nice for Smart to get some games without Brogdon, right? Where Brogdon is doing so much of the heavy lifting with the second unit and Marcus Smart not getting as many ball handling opportunities. He's been one of the most efficient pick and roll ball handlers in the league by the number, but those opportunities haven't been there as much as they were last year because the addition of Brogdon. Not to say I don't like that. I love Brogdon. He's been a great fit for this team when he's on the court, but I think Smart has sort of recognized, hey, this is my opportunity to do some things, and he's been really good. All right, the other guy that really contributed last night, Peyton Pritchard, man. So this is what I'll say about Pritchard before I get into what he did is it's nice to see it because you do in some sense feel bad for the guy, right? Because basically... Most of the other teams in the league, this guy would be getting minutes. I'm not telling you he's like an all-star level player or anything along those lines, but he played in the Celtics rotation last year, a team that was the best team of the second half of the season, won the Eastern Conference and played in the NBA Finals. Like Peyton Pritchard was a part of that rotation last year. And basically to begin the year, because of the addition of Brogdon, he wasn't playing whatsoever. So when you do get that opportunity, how do you make the opportunity worth it? How do you send a message to the coaching staff that you want to play more? Now, I don't think he should play significantly more than he was earlier this season, but it is nice to see what he was able to do last night. You look at it, 96-84 with 44.3 seconds left in the third. This is where Peyton Pritchard took over the game. He hits a prayer 32-footer, which I think was a little bit of luck, but nonetheless, he hit it. And then right before half, Pritchard gets a steal on Shea, and then he finishes at the basket to make it 96-89. And that was so important because the Garden started going nuts. We all know the Garden loves Pritchard, so everybody's going nuts there. And it gave this team juice. That's one of the things I do appreciate with Pritchard. When Pritchard makes a big play, Smart loves it, and Tatum, maybe more importantly, loves it. Like, those guys go nuts when Pritchard makes big plays. And you don't win that game against the Thunder without Pritchard. And you are going to have these games over the course of an 82-game schedule that you should lose. They should have lost to the Thunder last night. They were down 15 points, but because of some of the plays that Pritchard made, some of the plays that Smart made, and I do give Derek White some credit, too. He made some major big plays, too, as um, except when he... I don't know what the fuck he was doing when he hang, when he's hanging on the rim. They get an AM1 on that particular play. I don't know what the hell Derek White was doing, but Derek White was really good in that game last night as well. But I do like to see Pritchard. 10 points, 4 rebounds. And this is the big one to me. He did this the other night, too. You know, he had three offensive rebounds in that game. He just creates extra possessions. So a grinded game against the Thunder. And now the Celtics schedule gets a little bit more difficult as you get ready for Atlanta, who, of course, made the big trade in the offseason to bring over DeJounte Murray. And then you're going to have Zion Williamson and the Pelicans coming up on Friday night. So the NBA really is interesting in general because there's so many good teams across the league. But the biggest thing I look at in all these games, will Tatum be the best player on the floor? Because... Last night was one of the only games that I can remember this season where Tatum wasn't the best player on the floor. Shea was better than him last night until Tatum took over in the fourth quarter at times. But for the most part, Tatum has been the best player on the floor every game that he's played in this season. So really excited to see what this team's going to do the rest of the way. And by the way, right now, they're on a 64-win pace. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Srudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.